season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Monday, December 25th, 1978. It's Christmas Day in Pinedale, Wyoming. Temperatures are hovering in the teens, Fahrenheit, which is actually damn near balmy for this tiny town at the foot of the Wind River Range. But that wouldn't last. At the Skinner House, Perry Como's Early American Christmas with special guest John Wayne is on the television. But other than a glance in passing, nobody's really paying attention to the Duke. The flurry of activity in the house is less Christmas morning and more Everest expedition. 19-year-old Todd Skinner's home for the holidays from the University of Wyoming, and his uncle Courtney, as he's known to do, has hatched a plan. Eight years earlier, Todd had become the youngest person at 11 years old to summit Gannett Peak, Wyoming's highest. And Court figured he might as well be the first to do a winter ascent as well and stand on the summit on New Year's Day. Todd was game. He was game for just about anything. Anything except swimming, that is. Not a fan of swimming. Water in that state is dangerous. Has a mind of its own. But snow? Snow is fine. Besides, he'd be with his uncles. The Skinner brothers were Wyoming royalty. They'd all lettered in skiing all four years at UW, some Olympic hopefuls, and they ran the Skinner Brothers Wilderness School that taught kids from all over the world how to handle themselves in the mountains. Typically understated, Courtney later said, We didn't actually teach much. We let the mountains teach the kids. And this winter, the mountains had a big lesson in store. A couple of days later, the team of seven began the 20-mile ski journey into the winds, dragging 100-pound sleds behind them. The winds are one of the most wild and remote areas in the United States, but the Skinners knew it well. And they had to, because winter had turned the entire landscape into an undulating snow carpet, impossible to recognize the usual landmarks. In his book, Beyond the Summit, Todd writes, Lakes were levels of white. Rocks were mounds of white, and trees were lumps of white. The team set up camp just below Bonnie Pass, where they hoped they were out of avalanche danger. They anchored their tents into the powder and dug a snow cave five feet deep for a kitchen. The next morning was nearly perfect. Cold, but bluebird clear and sunny. They strapped on their skis, warm clothes, and not much else, opting to move fast and light. 
They made swift work of the pass, but soon hit chest-deep powder that slowed their progress to a crawl. By the time they reached Gannett Peak, it was getting dark. But no reason to panic. In the morning, they'd climb the peak and return via the trail they'd just broken. Easy. Todd remembered from a trip in the summer that near the mountain's base there was a large crevasse, so they broke into it from above, settled onto an ice shelf, lit candles for warmth, and went to sleep, dreaming of their inevitable first winter ascent the next day. But the mountains had other plans. They knew that Todd Skinner needed a lesson he could one day take into the great ranges of the world to climb a rocket ship-shaped tower that threatened to kill him and his entire team. And so quietly, while the Skinners slept deep in the Wyoming wilderness, the snow and the temperatures started falling. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Written in Stone, climbing's most important ascents. This is Season 1. The 1990s. One, two. Todd Richard Skinner was born on October 28, 1958. Growing up in Pinedale with a father and four uncles who would eventually be inducted into the Wyoming Sports Hall of Fame, organize the Cowboys on Everest trip to the Himalaya, and run a wilderness school for kids, Todd's life as a top climber was essentially preordained. He learned to climb on the short crags around Burnt Lake, where the Skinner Brothers' camp was based, but like his dad and uncles, it was the mountains that drew him in. That is, until he went away 300 miles south and east to the University of Wyoming in Laramie. It was here, a few days before Christmas break of 1978, that he would meet a young climber who'd had a different sort of tutelage, mostly on short, challenging rock climbs in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Paul Piano would take Todd under his wing, teach him all about free climbing on difficult cracks and faces, and make big plans to climb big walls in a style not yet imagined. But first, they were headed home for Christmas. When the team of climbers awoke on that ice shelf in a crevasse at the base of Gannett Peak and saw that snow had been falling through the night, they had a decision to make. Go up or go down. And it wasn't really a decision. They were going up. As they spent another day floundering in the deep powder, the snowfall picked up, and by the time they reached the summit, it was an all-out blizzard. Barely making it back to their crevasse by nightfall, they had no choice but to settle back in for another long, cold night. By morning, it was near whiteout conditions, but still, there was no choice. They were running out of food and fuel, had only the clothes they were wearing, and needed to get out of there. 
The trail they'd broken had disappeared along with all visual landmarks, and Courtney and Todd could make out three possible ways to go. Todd chose because there was no time for indecision. And by dark, they realized his choice was wrong. Weather records show Pinedale hovering around 40 below this day, and simulated models for the winds look considerably worse. The team tried to dig snow caves, but in the powdery snow, they just collapsed. Eventually, they dug 30-inch deep holes that fit two people side by side, covered themselves with their packs, and Courtney, who would stay up all night, pacing back and forth in the blizzard, buried them in their shallow snow graves. Todd was dreaming of sunny rock climbing with Paul when the avalanche probe poked him in the ribs. In total, seven feet of new snow had fallen, but with skies now clear, the team who'd made the first winter ascent of Gannett Peak made it back to Pinedale to dream of bigger things. Todd would write that the ascent pushed my margin of tolerance for snow and cold out to a point I have never again reached. Even at the time, I sensed it was a worthy investment into my future capacity. But lying there, in his snow grave, under seven feet of fresh snow, he couldn't have known how important this lesson from the mountain would later be. Todd returned to Laramie and began his tutelage under both Paul Piana and the flaring cracks of nearby Vitavu. Seemingly popping up out of nowhere in the plains of southeastern Wyoming, the piles of Precambrian granite more resemble mounds of Play-Doh than a training ground for rock climbers. The stands of quaking aspen and beaver ponds are an idyllic facade, but don't let it fool you. Most roots are short, often less than 50 feet, but what they lack in height, they make up for in fury. here over the course of their college career that one of the most storied partnerships in climbing history was forged. Vitavu was largely insulated from the rest of the U.S. climbing scene, which meant that Todd and Paul were only vaguely aware of what any grades near the top of the scale, which at the time had been flirting with breaking out of the upper edge of the 512s, might feel like. They devoured anything they could get their hands on about what other climbers were doing, and this fueled their daytime climbing as well as their nighttime traverses on the stone walls of their dormitories. Nearing the end of that first year, Todd and Paul drove to the hallowed grounds of Yosemite Valley. A couple of years earlier, Stonemaster Ron Kalk had completed the first ascent of a much sought-after splitter crack known as Tales of Power. Huden and Jones, two of the most visionary free climbers on the planet and heroes to Skinner and Piana, had claimed the second and third ascents. At 12B, it was one of the hardest routes around, and for the two Wyoming boys, an astronomical leap from where they were. But as Todd would later write, to accomplish great things, you must dream remarkable dreams. So they roped up and Piana clipped into the belay for Todd to make his first foray onto something truly difficult. They were both astonished when Todd clipped the anchor. No falls, no trouble really. He just kept 
going. Assuming the hard part must be coming soon, they realized right there that what they'd been doing back in nowhere Wyoming on those mounds of fossilized Play-Doh was hard, really hard. And they were good, really good. And throughout the 80s, the pair got better and better, expanding their skills in both directions. They made a list of what they determined to be the four greatest big walls in North America, and they spent winters in Waco tanks, training on short pitches and hard boulders. In 1987, Skinner climbed Steve Hong's Fallen Arches in Utah's Little Cottonwood Canyon, first try, without falling, becoming the first American to flash 513. They knew that by mastering these short, hard pitches, they had a much better chance on the cruxes of those big walls. In 1988, they received what was then known as the Underhill Award from the American Alpine Club for their groundbreaking free ascent of El Capitan via the Salathe Wall, a route Hewden and Jones had laid much of the groundwork for a few years earlier. It was at this banquet that Todd was pulled aside by one of the greatest alpinists of all time, Polish legend Wojtek Kortyka, who was fresh off an aid climbing ascent in the Karakoram Himalaya. I have something to show you he said to Skinner, who couldn't imagine what Wojtek thought might interest him from the big mountains. But he recognized a kindred spirit in the rebellious, hawk-faced, wild-eyed climber, and so he made time to go see the photos of the tower Kortika had just climbed. What we saw was a revelation, Todd would later write. Removed from the Himalayan backdrop, the rock might have been plucked out of the best of Yosemite's big walls. Beautiful sunlit granite, laser cracks, extreme vertical exposure. I'd gotten used to thinking of myself as a rock gymnast with no apparent business in the Himalayas, but I could see myself in his photos. At that moment, it looked to me like I could pursue the same sport in the wildest arena on Earth. You should go free climate, he said with an air that such a thing was perfectly reasonable. And so, as the 80s turned into the 90s, and the two would climb the Jaded Lady on the north face of Mount Hooker in the winds, only 29 miles from Gannett Peak, and the Great Canadian Knife in the Cirque of the Unclimbables in the Yukon, the image of that tower stuck with Todd. And in 1993, when their wall-climbing partnership eventually dissolved during an extended effort to free the direct northwest face of Half Dome, Paul leaving to tend to responsibilities at home and Todd calling in reinforcements to join him after 55 days trying the route, the image of that tower stuck with Todd. And so by 1995, he was chomping at the bit. If he didn't do it, someone else would. And when he imagined that perfect granite rocket ship in one of the wildest places on the planet just sitting there waiting for a high-level, high-quality free climb to be established on its southeast face, he imagined himself on the side of it. He'd already climbed what he deemed the greatest big walls in North America, his confidence growing with each free ascent. And he'd already figured out the first crux, the money. One of the pioneers of making a living from climbing, he had a great relationship with Reebok, who was trying to get into the climbing game, and they contributed $40,000 to the endeavor. Now, the most important part, he needed a team. We'll be right back.
What's up, everybody? I just wanted to drop in here to say thank you. Projects like this take way too many hours to make, and it just doesn't happen without your support. So whether it's training plans, courses, or products, it's your support of Power Company Climbing, as well as our sponsors here on this show, that has given me the time and motivation to conceptualize and create things like this podcast. So as a thank you, we're offering 20% off of almost everything on our site. Finger files, clippers, apparel, proven plans, ebooks, courses, and more. For details, go to powercompanyclimbing.com slash stone. And then use the code stone, that's S-T-O-N-E, at checkout. Powercompanyclimbing.com. Learn. Grow. Excel. Todd Skinner was a businessman. Many climbers of the era assumed that to do well in the big ranges, a climber needed a resume of hard, similar climbs. But like the business leaders of today are just figuring out, Todd knew that a list of accomplishments told very little of the actual story. No matter how impressive the resume is, he'd write, the mountain will remain unimpressed. He was looking for commitment, fire, hunger, someone who was willing to give the impossible a chance. Todd's first choice was Steve Bechtel. Late in the Half Dome campaign, Steve had gotten the call and had shown up, supporting and sticking with the team to the summit. 24 years old from Casper, Wyoming, he wasn't a stranger to hard work, and most importantly, rather than being doubtful about the possibility, he was enthusiastic about the trip. His enthusiasm rubbed off. Steve's friends and fellow University of Wyoming graduates, Mike Lilligren and Bobby Modell, began making their cases as to why they should be on the team. Skinner didn't know them, but their desire to go on the trip was unavoidable. And on an expedition where failure was more certain than success, desire might have been the most important asset. They would also be accompanied by photographer Bill Hatcher, and rounding out the team was Jeff Bechtel, Steve's brother, who didn't know a thing about climbing, but had a wealth of experience as a hunting guide and would act as base camp manager. When the team arrived in Islamabad, they were met by a veteran Pakistani climber they had hired to help figure things out with the government. Did you bring lots of milk? He asked. What for? questioned the astonished Skinner. For the babies, he replied, pointing toward the inexperienced team of Wyoming cowboys. But those babies were ready. Not that they had a choice. They didn't know it yet, but the mountain had a lesson to teach. The team piled their two tons of gear onto the top of a bus, and with the driver they nicknamed Wild-Eyed Charlie behind the wheel, careened away from Islamabad toward the bustling trade center of Skardu, where they would hire 80 porters to help make the three-day trek in from Askol to the Trango Glacier. The oldest of the porters, Hussein, at 80 years old, had been on the first successful expedition to K2 in 1954. Todd doubted that an 80-year-old should be out there, worried that it could ultimately slow them all down. But once old Hussein passed him on the trail and disappeared into the distance, singing all the while, Todd realized that he and his team of cowboys were, in fact, the weak links. The first view of Trango Tower, also known as Nameless Tower, stopped them cold. 
no pun intended, it suddenly burst into view from behind Great Trango and became a reality that was at once exciting and horrifying. Uneasy about what lie ahead, they paid the porters extra for getting them there safely, set up camp, and tried to get some sleep. But that first night, things started going wrong. For a few days, Steve Bechtel had been suffering from a headache, losing his balance and his vision, and it had gotten worse. A hyperbaric bag to effectively lower the altitude did nothing to help, so the team agreed that Jeff was going to hike out with his brother and get him back to the U.S. Not even on the wall yet, and down two team members, not to mention a key member whose enthusiasm was the entire reason it wasn't just Todd on this mission, they could have turned back. Nobody would have said a word. Staring at that massive tower the next day didn't make it any easier. But history was on their side. The tower had first been climbed in 1976 by a team led by British legend Joe Brown. Two new routes were added in 1987, and in 1988, a German team led by Kurt Albert and Wolfgang Gulich would do the first all-free ascent via the Yugoslav route established the prior year. Kurt and Wolfgang would return the next year with Milan Sikora and Christoph Stiegler to establish possibly the most famous route on the wall, Eternal Flame, freeing all but four pitches. In 1990, Catherine Destevel made the first female ascent of the wall with Jeff Lowe when they repeated the free ascent of the Yugoslav route. So the wall was climbable, free climbable even, a place for legends, sure, but doable. However, nobody, not even the greatest climbers of their generation, had walked up to the wall and established a new route by free climbing it. To be fair, the pitches to the ledge where the wall really began had been done by other parties, and they would be joining Wojtek Kortika's aid line high on the wall. So it wasn't all completely untrodden terrain. But still, down a man and not able to look away from the foreboding tower rising above them, they were having serious second thoughts. Was it even possible? Skinner would later write, Standing at the base of Trango Tower, I wanted to turn back because I knew we were not good enough. Only in retrospect did I realize that there was no place we could have trained, no other challenge that would approximate the one before us. The other mountains we'd climbed only tricked us into coming here. They didn't prepare us to climb this mountain. They only prepared us to make the decision to climb it. But I knew instinctively that even if we had every reason in the world to leave, we had to stay. If you don't stay, you cannot begin the process of succeeding. The now smaller team climbed the already established 10 pitches of 511 that got them to the ledge system known as Sun Terrace. Here they established Shoulder Camp. They made the tough decision to stay at Shoulder Camp rather than retreat daily to Base Camp where they could better recover. Six days in, they'd only moved their high point a few pitches up the wall, and morale was dropping fast. That night, they called down to base camp to the cook and new manager, Ali Khan. A familiar voice responded. Jeff, is that you? Mike asked. No, it's John Wayne. Morale was suddenly trending up. If Jeff was back, Steve was back, a fresh and capable climber. Hope. 
Todd took the radio. Put Steve on. Steve's not here. I put him on a plane home. Jeff wasn't a climber. There wasn't much he could do to help up here. Morale was crashing again. Unsure and increasingly anxious, the team tried to sleep. Mortar fire lit up the distant darkness, evidence of the layers of hostility this place held as Pakistan, India, and China battled over the blurred borders of the Kashmir region, unrest that still continues today. Here they were, chasing their dreams up a hostile peak in a foreign country, a world away from their homes, while just a few miles away from where they sat in their tents, people killed each other over a border that their governments couldn't agree on. So much of it all seemed pointless. The next morning, snow began falling and it continued for most of the next week. Todd, Mike, and Bobby huddled together in their tents at shoulder camp, alternating between plans for retreat and motivation to ascend. When the skies cleared, Jeff radioed up that base camp had been obliterated by the wind from an avalanche. They were working to restore it, but it was a big setback. However, the team on the wall had decided to continue and had found their own setback just a few pitches up. A blank section between cracks that was probably 513-something, but in the altitude and cold, seemed entirely impossible. And they were approaching their self-imposed deadline. 15 days on the wall was their projected worst-case scenario and would mean that the prudent thing would be to turn back. And at 15 days, just when they were giving up, the radio crackled to life again. It was Jeff. I'm coming up with you. I've got Steve's gear, so either somebody comes down and shows me how to use it, or I'll figure it out myself. Despite their reservations, Mike was sent down to help Jeff figure out how to ascend the ropes. Jeff immediately became an asset, hauling loads from base camp to shoulder camp and working to make camp nicer and more secure. This is the most laid-back camping trip I've ever been on, he joked. No hiking, nice camp, great view. You guys have got it pretty good. With Jeff handling the daily chores and melting snow and cooking, it freed up Todd, Mike, and Bobby to focus on the climbing. On day 25, Todd sent a hard pitch at 19,000 feet, as well as a 512 crack that followed. Mike sent a big off width and a 511 finger crack to put the team about halfway up the main wall. And it was here that they established hanging camp. Two portal edges on a small chopped out ledge. The tops of several small blocky towers held snow so they'd have water and they wouldn't have to commute all the way down to shoulder camp every day. Jeff would stay down there while the team worked above to move upward. And they were making good progress. Only about 10 or so pitches remained to be freed, but some would be difficult, so they knew it would take more time. Two more weeks, they estimated, but then they'd assumed 15 days for the entire thing. At this point, they'd been on the wall for 40 days, and their permit had run out. The liaison officer at base camp wasn't happy, but radioed up that he could permit two more weeks. But that would be the absolute limit. And so Bill Hatcher went back to Islamabad to deal with the extension details, which left Bobby Modell to shoot photos. More complicated, sure, 
But now, over two-thirds of the way finished, spirits were higher. Jeff was getting tired of being solo at shoulder camp, so he moved up to hanging camp and took over as he had down lower. He also led his first pitches ever, knocking out the two remaining moderates and leaving eight difficult pitches to go. On the 45th day on the wall, Mike Red pointed a hard 5-12 pitch and Todd was working out the next when the sun went dark. An electrified wall of black clouds, chaotic with lightning and thunder, was rolling toward them at high speed, devouring the jagged peaks as it came. Mike and Todd raced down the wall toward hanging camp, where Bobby and Jeff were watching in disbelief as the violent weather advanced. As fast as it's moving, it'll be gone in a couple of hours and dry again by mid-morning, Todd ensured the team, who having weathered every other storm, were now dozing off with dreams of the inevitable summit day coming soon. But this storm was different. In the mountain, it had a lesson to teach. We'll be right back. Look. Climbers in the 90s were strong, really strong. Because while they may not have had the scientific knowledge about training that we do today, they did have passion, common sense, and just like my friends over at Tension Climbing, they focused on mastery over success. Tension's wooden training tools are built with us, the climbers, in mind. To facilitate an elevated climbing and training experience, easy on the skin, challenging for the muscles and tendons, focused on mastery. You can use the code STONE for 10% off their training tools and to let them know how much you appreciate their support for this podcast, history, and this community. That's STONE, S-T-O-N-E, all lowercase or all caps if you feel like yelling it. When you support them, you're supporting us. Tensionclimbing.com. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards, and cannot be combined with other offers. Once the team of cowboys closed their eyes and drifted off, the storm called an audible. It would stop right here and focus its forces. The wind would whip through the Trango Valley and gather its speed until it hit Trango Tower, turn 90 degrees straight up the wall, and slam full force into hanging camp. For a moment, all four climbers dreamed they were great rodeo riders floating on the back of some hooved tornado, the object of admiration to every woman watching and envy to every man. Stories would be told about them for generations. Children would run and jump and twirl around their yards pretending to be them. License plates would bear their silhouettes. And the mountain let them linger there for a moment, in the blissfully unaware quiet, portal edges no longer waiting the single anchors they were clipped to. And now, there's a debate in Wyoming concerning which horse is actually depicted on the state's license plates. Some say it's Steamboat, born in 1896 in Chugwater, Wyoming, and known as the horse that couldn't be ridden. Others say it was Dead Man from Jackson, a legendary bucking bronc who easily bested Lander Wyoming's top rodeo rider, Stub Farlow. But this Himalayan wind didn't really care which horse it was. 
Instead, it channeled both, along with gin fizz and desert dust and every other wild Wyoming horse, and slammed the cowboys in their blue and green hanging tents back down to reality. They must have thought the mountain was falling. They yelled back and forth to each other, not able to make out what anyone was saying, but just to make sure the two men in the other tent were still alive. And for hours they endured the bucking. Rainflies were coming apart. Anything not tied down threatened to disappear. By the dark early morning hours, the wind had calmed down enough that they could just make out each other's shouts, but the snow and sleet were now falling heavy. The climbers leaned out of their portal edges and chopped their stove from the ice for a pick-me-up, knowing that sleep wasn't in the cards after all. Todd tried to lift the spirits. We took what it had and made it through, boys. Once this snow melts, we're going to the top. Mike spoke up. Even if the snow stops today, and we have to wait a day for it to melt, we'll run out of fuel. We'd be safer waiting it out of shoulder camp. I say we go down. In the dark, in a blizzard, is not exactly the time for a team to be wrapping down a wall, but they didn't have a lot of choices. And Mike was right. The safe choice was to retreat. Recognizing the level-headedness, Todd reluctantly agreed with Mike, and they started down. By the time they reached shoulder camp, the ropes were close to being encased in ice, frozen to the wall. If they'd waited any longer, their escape would have been impossible. They laid in their tents, doubts filling the flimsy yellow nylon shells. By early the next evening, Todd and Bobby in one tent simultaneously realized they couldn't hear anything. Just as the excitement set in that the storm must be over, they also realized that they couldn't breathe. Bobby, in just his long underwear, began tearing at the frozen zipper and clawing through the two feet of wet snow that buried them alive. Todd furiously wriggled into storm gear and began clearing the two tents of their icy sheathing. The storm was still raging. From that moment forward, every 45 minutes, light or dark, someone had to go outside and clear the tents to keep the team alive. Really, any chore would become a welcome distraction as a two-day storm stretched into three and then four and then, well, they lost count of what was day and what was night and how many days they'd been sitting there reading the same books, clearing the same snow, scribbling quotes on the wet tent walls and inventing card games with the Uno deck. On the ninth day, Ali Khan, the cook, radioed up. Seven climbers had died on K2 two more on another mountain, and a Japanese soloist on Shipton Tower had died in his portal edge. All other expeditions in the area had left. The cowboys halfway up the ice-encased golden rocket ship were the last remaining team in the Karakorum. When? The liaison officer at base camp demanded to know. Are you coming down? Your extension is about to expire, and there can be no more time given. Todd thought back to that New Year's when 1978 turned into 1979 and he took the wrong turn. But they didn't stop. They kept pushing, kept believing. Gannett Peak's lesson wasn't that they couldn't do it. It was that they could. If they just kept going. Only seven pitches remained to be climbed and they couldn't go down even if they wanted to. Their ropes were still frozen to the wall under 12 inches of solid ice. I'm 
sending for the porters. You have three days to get down. It was crushingly quiet at shoulder camp. The weight of failure making the 51 days they'd been at over 18,000 feet seemed like not nearly enough. Mike, again, spoke up. Someone has to tell him. It ain't over till it's over. The next morning, the sun rose in its full glory, and the entire world of the four climbers began to avalanche. And while the snow sloughed off and giant killer ice sheets evacuated the wall, there were tough decisions to make. In the three allotted days, they could clean their gear off the wall, and they'd be home in a week. Or they could go up and see if it was possible. No, they were done asking if it was possible. They had shifted to asking if it was impossible. And no, it wasn't impossible. So why not just do it now? They looked at each other, and they all looked up. There was no going down. And so they called the liaison officer. They needed a third extension. No such thing had ever been granted because, well, no such thing had ever been asked for. He would have to trek out and beg for it. And even if the government refused, it would buy them 10 more days. They were already headed up the wall. With all of their remaining fuel and food, the entire team moved up to hanging camp for the final push. The sun didn't stay out for long, but the now not-so-great conditions in comparison to what they'd just weathered seemed downright perfect. The goal of their ascent was never for everyone to free every pitch. Instead, they were a team and they traveled as one. As long as someone freed every pitch, they would consider it a success, and they all had project pitches to finish up in the bid for the summit. First to finish their project pitch was Bobby. He'd been seemingly going downhill for a while now, losing a lot of weight with a constant cough and no feeling in his feet. But he somehow willed himself up a hard 512 dihedral and sparked the team's motivation once more. But the sparks had to come constantly, as the mountain was taking its toll. Cuts and scrapes weren't healing in the altitude. Oozing blood left everyone stuck to their sleeping bags in the morning. They were all haunted shells of their former athletic selves. Mike's humor and Jeff's this is easy attitude kept the entire team afloat. It gave Todd enough to finish two of his project pitches. Two hard ones were left. One for Todd, one for Bobby. On the 58th day on the wall, Todd tackled a finger crack they thought might be too thin to be climbable. Close to success can also mean close to failure and they were feeling that pressure intensely. At a little over 19,000 feet, he started up. People had told them they were crazy for going to Waco Tanks to train for Trango. 10-foot tall boulders in the sunny El Paso desert to prepare for a 34-pitch big wall in one of the most hostile environments known to man? But Todd had reasoned that most big free ascents were stopped not by the massive volume of easy climbing, but by some short section of rock that they just couldn't figure out. And so he trained accordingly. And here, so close to failure, he recalled those days in the desert. 10 more feet. This isn't even a hard boulder problem. Now, 10 more feet. 
and 10 more, and so on, until he pulled onto the ledge, leaving everything he had on the pitch below. He'd be useless for a couple of days. So now, it was all up to Bobby. Mike stood there on belay, watching Bobby stare up at the pitch. Not sure he could do it, but then not sure that he couldn't. In the below-freezing temps, they had resorted to pre-freezing their hands on the rock, tucking them into their armpits until the agonizing rush of blood coming back in was finished, and then they'd race up the pitch. And race, he did. The team watched in horror as Bobby lunged, slipped, and flailed his way up, skipping opportunities to place gear and climbing worse than he ever had. But against all odds, he just kept going. He was going to make it. And then suddenly, he was in the air. Mike was yanked into the wall and Bobby came to rest just above him, finger dripping with blood from a massive flapper. Solemnly, they lowered Bobby back to the ledge and tried to stop the bleeding. Nobody wanted to say it, that the mountain had won, that they'd been stopped by a flapper. They sat there, quiet, Bobby with his head between his knees. Going down might be the only option. It was late in the afternoon. The sky darkened and the snow began to swirl harder. I think, Bobby said quietly, not even raising his head, that if you tape me up, I can give it another try. So with superglue, tape, and his strength fading with the Himalayan light, Bobby Modell fought for it and sent. The next morning, their 60th day living on the wall, Mike Lilligren led the team through the remaining snow and ice pitches to the 30-foot by 30-foot platform of snow that was the summit of Trango Tower. Todd would later write, I knew that if Bobby Modell had not risen out of his frozen blood and led that last pitch, if Mike Lilligren had not kept his sense of humor and fighting spirit for 60 straight days, if Jeff Bechtel hadn't become the most misplaced cowboy in Himalayan history, I would have failed. If Steve Bechtel hadn't shared the dream, I might never have come here. If Paul Piana hadn't believed in me as a partner to the impossible. But they all did. And so he just kept go. On October 23rd, 2006, Todd Skinner died in a fall from Leaning Tower in Yosemite. With the projects he left all around the world, particularly near his hometown in Lander, Wyoming, he just keeps going. Bobby Modell was on the front of the April 1996 issue of National Geographic that covered the Trango ascent, and some of his photos were run in that story. Todd urged him to continue photography. He returned to Pakistan and spent several years documenting the lives and culture of the Balti people there. He died in 2009 in Cody, Wyoming. 
Cowboy Direct, Grade 7, 513A, finally saw its first repeat from Jordan Cannon, Matt Siegel, and Jesse Huey in August of 2023, nearly 30 years after the first ascent. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including links to get Todd's book, Beyond the Summit, and how you can get a copy of Paul Piana's out-of-print book, Big Walls, signed by Paul Piana himself. And look... The show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And seriously, if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. The algorithm loves it, which means more people find it, which means sponsors will love it, which means we can make a season two, and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Secret Stoners. Wow, it's out. Uh, This episode was honestly a little more nerve-wracking for me to make than I expected it to be, Uh, largely because Todd Skinner is a a big presence here in Lander, and rightfully so, and and a big presence in my life in general. Um, I met my wife through Amy Skinner, She introduced me to her while I was here at the Climbers Festival to perform a song about Todd that I had written. Um, So he's been a a really pivotal person in my life, even though I never met him. And uh, several people from this story are still here in town. Steve Bechtel is here in town. Uh, Mike Lilligren is here in town. And, And interestingly enough, I ran into him at the crag yesterday, um, which is also funny because I, I sent a 13B later in the day that w- that is just off vertical and small little crimps, which is my absolute anti-style. I'm more like the Fred Ruling type of climber, uh, but I just channeled uh, some of those 1990s climbers who were climbing on that kind of terrain, and I got the thing done. But anyway, uh, I'm getting off track here. Um, Todd Skinner is a big presence here. So this one uh, was nerve-wracking. I think I did it justice. I believe I did it justice, and I, uh, that's the best I can do. You know, I, I put a lot into this thing, and I'm, I'm doing my best. And no matter what it is you're doing, that's enough. Okay, the giveaway. We are giving away three big prizes Uh, to the general podcast audience. So definitely go put your email address in over there. If you have not, the link is in the show notes. We are also giving away two of the same prizes just to patrons. And you don't have to do anything 
to join this giveaway. You're already in if you've already signed up to be a secret stoner. If you have not signed up, however, you have until uh, the end of Friday to do so. And you can do that at patreon.com slash secret stoners club. It's all one word. And here's how it's going to work. We've got two paying tiers. Um, we have our $5 rock stars, our $10 legends. Rock stars each get two entries, and legends each get three entries. Uh, everyone else gets a single entry. So if you want the extra entry, you can do that by the end of Friday. And we'll be giving away the, the custom tension blocks that say make history. They're very cool. Uh, tension shoe spray. Uh, power company proven plan and the power company organic skincare kit, uh, which is our files, our clippers, circuit tape uh, in a custom made organic ditty bag with the power company logo. So if you're already in, nothing to do. If you're not, get in. And of course, I want to take a second to give a big shout out to our newest supporters uh, at the Rockstar level. Arthur, thank you. We appreciate you. Our newest legend is Jeremiah. It means the world. You have no idea. Uh, and also a new legend, Jaytree Mike, who, Mike, I don't know when we first met. Uh, I can't remember if it was at the Crag, maybe Indie Wall in Muir Valley, or was it at Planet Rock for a competition when my daughter, who is now 25, was like 10? or something, um, 10 or 12 maybe, that might be it. Planet Rock in Detroit, uh, or one of the Michigan Planet Rocks, I don't remember which, but that might be it. Anyway, thank you so much for the continued support over all of these years. Uh, it means more than I could possibly tell you. Okay, you guys, next Monday, Jordan Cannon. Uh, Jordan is fresh off of, well, maybe not fresh off of, it's been a little while now, uh, but he is off of the second ascent of Cowboy Direct on Trango Tower. And Jordan is of this new age of climbers, this new batch of climbers who embrace it all, who have the best attitudes uh, and who are absolute crushers as well as just general good amazing humans and i love him for that uh, and i cannot wait for you guys to hear that conversation it's one of my favorites that i've had all season so far all right that's enough i have lots of things to do today uh, to be ready for this giveaway and we're almost uh, we're coming close to the end of this season and we are working feverishly to get this thing done. We're closing in on it. Thank you, all of you secret stoners, for the support. See you Monday.